It's good to be back this morning. Please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 21 to 23. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God... For what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning that you would lead me and and guide me in my speech, that you would help me to bring forth your word in a way that is pleasing to you, and we ask for the Spirit's help in applying your word, that you would apply to each and every heart here, that no person would, would leave here unchanged this day, and that if any don't know you, that they would turn to you for salvation this very day, that they would trust in Jesus and turn from their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are eight messages into this study on Acts chapter 4, focusing on the theme of how to be faithful in our mission, even in the midst of persecution. And as we have said many times, before Jesus left, he, He gave us a commission, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ commands. And when we do this, we know that we are going to face opposition. So, so how do we do this faithfully? And we see this here in Acts chapter 4. And we'll probably have one more message on this chapter next week, and then move back to Ephesians. And as we bring this study to a close, there are three more points that I want to point out in this narrative. Number one is a refusal to fear man. And secondly is the necessity of Christian community. And third is the priority of corporate prayer. And we will look at this point next week. So as we look at the Sanhedrin's response to the apostles' boldness and faithfulness, we learn several things. So we've been examining Peter and John's interaction with the rulers. Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. And, and we, we see their interaction with the rulers. And, and we're asking the question, what, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from the way they act and the way they respond to this opposition to the gospel? So again, Peter and John are arrested and questioned for preaching the gospel and for healing a crippled man. Peter proclaims the gospel to those who arrested him, and both the boldness of Peter and John astonish the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin know that they can say nothing against these men because the man who was healed was, was standing alongside of them, but, but they don't want the gospel to spread, so they tell Peter and John they are no longer allowed to preach or teach in Jesus' name at all. Now, Peter and John recognize that this command is a contradiction to what they are called to do, both as Christians and as apostles. So they tell the leaders they must obey God rather than men, and they explain to them that they cannot but speak of what they have seen and heard. These men are so overwhelmed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that they say, we cannot but do this. This gospel is so glorious where God provides salvation for men that they can't help but share it. And they love souls. They want souls to be saved. So so they can't help but share it. So they tell the Sanhedrin, we must obey 
God. And you can imagine how these proud and arrogant leaders would feel after being told, you won't be obeyed. The the rulers that Peter and John are talking to are the religious rulers. Now, it is true that they they happen to be acting as the civil rulers as well because of the the Roman structure here, but, but, but these are the religious leaders of the day, the religious authority of the day, and Peter and John tell them, we won't obey you because we must obey God. Can you imagine that today? Your, your, your pastor says, you know, you should do this. He's a religious leader. You should do this. And, and you say to him, I can't obey you because I have to obey God. There, there are implications behind that statement. The religious rulers who, who believe they rightly understand God and, and, and they, they believe they are the authority on religion, they command them to do something and they say, we can't obey you because we must obey God. What does this imply? Once again, this implies that the religious leaders are actually at odds with God. So, so not only are the, the rulers being told, no, we won't obey you in this matter, They're also being told that the reason why they won't be obeyed is because they are at odds with God. They are acting contradictory to God. That would be hard for any ruler to hear, especially these proud rulers. So, So how do they respond to this? We see in verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So there are several things we should note about this response. First, the the, the apostles were threatened once more. Luke says they had further threatened them. And as I've said before, when the the Sanhedrin threatens the apostles, this is not something to be taken lightly. In in our culture, we we don't really care about threats. Somebody says to you, I'm going to beat you up after school. They they probably don't mean it. You you say, you know, I'm I'm going to threaten this person. Don't ever do that again. And and you know that, that most people don't really mean what they say when they make a threat. But this is not the case with the Sanhedrin. These are dangerous men. They are are murderous men. And I remind you of what happened when Jesus was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Matthew 26. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. These are bad guys. I mean, these are the type of guys you see in a movie who just have no conscience. They're like, I want that man dead. Now let me find some evidence that's false to put him to death. These are the religious leaders. These men care nothing about law. They care nothing about justice. These are dangerous, murderous men. They mean what they say. This is not a vain or idle threat. The same Sanhedrin who was looking to kill Jesus, therefore looking for false evidence against him, this same Sanhedrin is now threatening Peter and John. (coughs) You better know that Peter and John know this is serious. Peter and John know this is not an empty threat. And once again, they, they know the type of men these are because what do they do several times? They accuse them of crucifying Jesus. They put the blame on them. So, so they know they are murderers. This is a, a serious threat. And, and I think it's safe to say that the rulers wanted to do more than just threaten them. If we look at verse 21 again, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. 
So here's the, the first heading. A, a refusal to fear man. Now this is very much related to what we have talked about several times, which is being bold witnesses. Being courageous. But, but this is one specific aspect, our, our application of that we're going to focus on this morning, and that is not fearing man. And we're going to do this by, by examining the bad example of the Sanhedrin and comparing that, contrasting that to the apostles. So why did the Sanhedrin let Peter and John go? Was it because of their righteousness? Was it because they were innocent? No, what does Luke say? They let them go, finding no way to punish them. They, in other words, they wanted to punish them. But they let them go because they could not find a way to punish them. Why? Because of the people. So the people were praising God because a man was crippled for more than 40 years. And he was miraculously healed. Praising God is the appropriate response to that. But the Sanhedrin is not praising God. They're looking for a way to punish these men, but they realize that they can't because these people are too excited about what has happened. If the people are praising God for what he did through Peter and John, what would happen if the Sanhedrin punished them at this point? Perhaps they would have been looked at as bad people. Maybe they would have lost the, the favor of the people. Their popularity and, and credibility as leaders would have possibly suffered. Or, or perhaps the people would have even risen up against them physically and physically harmed them to protect Peter and John. In either case, the rulers here are driven by what? The fear of man, either fearing that men would harm them or fearing that men would despise them and no longer think well of them. They are driven by fear. The Sanhedrin was filled with cowards. But by the way, if they actually believed that Peter and John were spreading false, blasphemous teaching that was dangerous to the people, why would they refrain from stopping them because of the people? They're cowards, inconsistent with their own views. And they don't actually believe that is blasphemous. And they fear, they're driven by fear of men. And this is the characteristic of the religious leaders, even during the time of Christ. And, and, and you no, take notice of this. Because the, the gospel writers point this out over and over again. They're constantly pointing out the, the, the motives of the religious leaders. Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable. And read that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him as a prophet. They know Jesus is talking about them. And they want to arrest him. And they're claiming that Jesus is a blasphemous person. But they won't arrest him. Why? Because they're afraid of the crowds. Or how about Luke 20? One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to them, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? And how does Jesus respond? I'll answer you if you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? And what do these cowards say? If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Or how about Luke 22, 
Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Did you ever wonder why is this emphasized so much? Difference, these, these rulers were cowards. They feared people, and the fear drove their words and their deeds. Even though they did not believe John was a prophet, they they would not say that his baptism was of man because they feared what the people might do to them since they were convinced he was a prophet. Imagine this. They don't actually believe this man is a prophet from God. But they, they are afraid to say it because of the people. They won't answer Jesus. They say, we don't know. They wanted to arrest Jesus and and put him to a death again. They said he was a blasphemer, making himself equal to God. But they refrained at times from doing this. Why? Because they feared the people. And now, the Sanhedrin don't believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they want his teachings stopped. But, but they let Peter and John go. Why? Because they fear the people. The people are praising God for, for what has happened. And if they punish Peter and John for it, there will be consequences. So have you noticed the difference between their behavior and the behavior of the apostles? Peter and John stand boldly before the people and proclaim the gospel not fearing what the people might think of them. And they stand boldly before the rulers and proclaim the gospel, (coughs) not fearing what might happen to them. And even when they are threatened to stop, they they, they tell their leaders, we won't stop, that they are bold and courageous and and they don't back down. These men are afraid of the crowds. By the way, what did the Apostle Paul do when, when, when there was a riot, a crowd of people? He tried to run in. He had to be physically restrained by other believers. These men are not afraid of the crowds. They're not afraid of the people. They, they don't fear men, and so they don't live as man-pleasers. Dear friends, we must have this courage and the reason I'm pointing this out is because, one, Luke emphasizes this in a text. He, he points out their motivation here. And, and we can also see the boldness of Peter and John as a, as a contrast. But, but, but this is something that is vital. This, this is vital at all times, but especially in times of, of persecution or opposition when there is pressure placed upon us. We are called to, to make disciples. But there are pressures in our culture and even in our churches to to tone down or change or ignore what Scripture says. Why? Because of the fear of man. There are voices in the church driven by the fear of man. Voices that, that are driven by a fear of what others might think of us. Voices that are driven by a fear of what we might be labeled. If we take a strong stance on on this issue, maybe people will label us as extremists. What is that? Fear of man. If we take a strong, uncompromising stance on that issue, people will say that we are mean. Fear of man. If we hold firm to the word without careful nuance, we will be labeled homophobic, sexist, racist, bigots, and maybe even white Christian nationalists. What is that? Fear of man. Fear of the opinions of men. Fear of what men might think of us. We don't want to be labeled as that church. So we had better tone down our beliefs, and and make sure that that we don't hold to anything too strongly. If we take a strong stance on this issue, perhaps some people in the church will be offended and leave. So let's just broaden our beliefs so that everyone fits into the camp without offense. 
Let's just get rid of our confession. Let's just get rid of our statement of faith. Let's just get rid of our constitution. It's not broad enough. It offends people. This is where we are at in Christianity in America today. Dear friends, we desperately need leaders who do not fear men. The church needs courageous leaders, men who do not fear men and women. Especially in times of persecution or just difficult times of the church, cowardly leaders are going to make decisions based upon a fear of what others will think or do, and this will destroy the local church. If I preach on this subject, people will leave. So we ignore entire books of the Bible, entire chapters of the Bible. Because if we touch that, people will leave. If I state my position too strongly, people are going to run out of here. If I preach with too much passion, people, people will think I'm yelling at them, so, so I better tone it down and I better get all of the, the bass out of my voice so that I don't offend anyone. If I preach authoritatively. People will think that I'm arrogant and mean. So instead of saying, thus says the Lord, I better just say, this is my humble opinion. Pastors today need to act more like prophets and less like politicians. And this is what we have in many pulpits today. Politicians Men who only hold to their convictions when it's cool. Men who who only state the, the, the truth strongly when that truth is popular. And we have seen this play out today, haven't we? How many pastors have changed their positions on things like women preaching only as the culture, the church, has become more egalitarian? Oh, and, and, and of course they say, well, of course culture could never convince me of this. It's the word of God. But the word of God, for some reason, only convinces them of that when it's popular in the church and culture. These are politicians changing their convictions with the ebbs and flow of the time, making sure that they fit into the culture, giving the people what they want for the sake of of a vote. These are not men saying, thus says the Lord. These are men who are telling you what you want to hear to get your vote. These are politicians, not shepherds. Listen to me, dear friends. The, the day that I stop feeding you because I fear that you want something else than the word of God is the day you need to throw me out of here. The day that I withhold truth from you because I think it will offend you is the day that you grab me by my collar and throw me out of here. And if the day comes when I refuse to give you all of Scripture because I fear it will cause some of you to leave, on that very day you need to tell me to pack my bags and never step foot in this pulpit again. If the day comes when any leader in this church refuses to speak all of Scripture because our culture, our government will come down on him for it, that is the day that leader better be removed from leadership. Pastors are not called to win popularity contests. We don't need men who want to be praised and thought well of by other men. We don't need men who want to to please all the other pastors so that they can be invited to to speak at conferences. Men who who would never hold to anything that is controversial because they never want to be looked at in a bad light by other men. We need men who are faithful shepherds that feed God's people, the whole counsel of God, no matter what the cost may be. Shepherds cannot be faithful if they are cowards who fear men. Dear friends, and it's not just leaders. What about the members of the church? The church must have courageous Members. 
men and, and women who do not make decisions based upon the fear of what others will do to you or the fear of what others will think about you. If the church is to be faithful to her mission, even in the midst of persecution, her members will have to be courageous. Cowardly members will leave strong churches. They don't want to be associated with, with, with the church that, that, that is labeled as extreme. If you fear what others may think, you will desire for the church to stop taking strong stances. If you fear what others may think, you would desire for the church to broaden its beliefs to make sure that no one is offended. Can't we just make this statement of faith broader? Can't this just incorporate more people? If you fear men, you will fear that that biblical truth is actually too divisive and controversial. And perhaps you will say, I know in my heart that this is truth, but but does it really need to be taught publicly? Do do we really need to hear from the pulpit that that homosexuality is sin? Do do we really need critical theory condemned from the pulpit? I mean, people are going to think that our church is racist. Even though you have a black man standing in a pulpit, they'll say, well, you probably just hired him to to do some works of anti-racism. What do we do if we fear men? Because strong leaders will stand for truth, if you live in fear of man, you won't like strong leaders and you won't like being in a strong church. You will want compromised leaders who are not controversial and, and, and you will call men who will say only what you want to hear, men with no conscience and no backbone. Is this what we want? If we are not courageous as a church, if we are fearers of men as a church, this is what we will get. But as members of the church, we must make sure that that we don't live in fear of man. Let, Let us not fear what men can do to us physically. And let us not fear the opinion of men. Who cares what we get labeled? Who cares what others think of us because of our commitment to the word of God? Dear friends, it is about time that we start caring more about what God thinks than what man thinks. Christians today are trying to be so cautious not to be labeled as this, not to be labeled as that. This is so bad. If I take this position, they're going to call me this. If I take this position, they're going to call me that. So let's just not take any position. This is not faithfulness. This is fear of man. And may God spare us of men who, who are cowards, like we see in the Sanhedrin, men who, who, who fear men, and that's what drives them. And may we have more men and women like the apostles who, who are not driven by the fear of men, but are bold and courageous, and they're not concerned about their, their physical well-being. Do what you want to me. I'm going to stand for truth, and they're not afraid of what people may label them as. And as we move on here and look at the apostles and the church's response to this threat of persecution, we're going to continue to see how essential it is that we, that we don't fear man. And I will point this out as we get there. <coughs> so the Sanhedrin lets the apostles go. Not because they want to, but because they fear the people. And what is the apostles' response to this threat of persecution. They're not fools. They don't downplay this threat of the rulers. They, they, they know the seriousness of the situation. So how do they respond? This is the second heading. The necessity of Christian community. We see the response of the apostles in verse 23. When they were released... 
they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. So several things to note here. Number one, they went to their friends. This is the first thing they do. That the apostles did not go off to be alone somewhere. They did not go off to isolate themselves. They, they didn't go to their homes and have a, a pity party. They, they did not go off and, and think deeply about what was going to happen to them and, and enter a state of panic and worry and anxiety. No, they go to their brothers and sisters in Christ. The ESV says they go to their friends, but, but the Greek word means one's own. So, so they go to their own, or their own company, as the, the KJV puts it. And I think this reveals to us the type of a relationship the early Christians had with one another. The, the first thing the apostles do after being released from jail is to go to their fellow believers and tell them about the threats of the Sanhedrin. Does that sound odd to you? It sounds a little bit odd to me. Just because you wouldn't, you wouldn't see that today. The first thing you do, I just got out of jail for this, and now I'm going to the church. I'm going to my fellow believers. But, but why do they do this? And I think they do this for several reasons. Number one, they want to warn the believers about the hostility of the Sanhedrin. Again, this is, this is a serious threat, and they want the others to be aware of it. Not to fear, but to be wise, to, to know what's going on, and so that they could pray about the situation. But secondly, as, as believers, they recognize that they find strength and courage and encouragement in Christian fellowship. This is a, a very real thing. H- have you ever been discouraged? And there's just something about getting together with, with God's people. And, and, and you do that and you leave and, and, and you recognize, you know what, I'm not actually discouraged anymore. This was encouraging. It was refreshing to me. And thirdly, and this is the most obvious from the text, the, the apostles go first to fellow believers after being released from jail because they had true Christian community. And I would argue that this is something that is almost foreign in America. That the early church actually did life together. It was not a strange thing for for Peter and John to go straight to other believers because they actually did life together. And we can see the type of life they are living if we go back to Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 46. This is the description we get of how they are living. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and prayers. And all who believed were together together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Does that describe us? Probably not. They have close community. True Christian community. These were not Christians who only saw each other on Sunday and hardly knew one another, didn't know each other's last name. This is not what we see here. They they actually trusted one another. They actually had real companionship. They were not the lone wolf Christians of today who says, I don't need people. I don't need other Christians in my business. I don't want them in my home. I don't want to be in their home. I just want to come to church and hear the word and go back to my life. This is not how they lived. These believers were together daily, sharing all things, meeting one another's needs. They prayed together and broke bread together in each other's homes. Think of the closeness of these saints. Closer than than blood, brothers and sisters. That They actually did life together and cared for one another. So when something happened, like the apostles getting arrested and threatened, it was natural for them to go to the saints they were so closely knit together with. Think about this in our context. 
If you were to suffer in some kind of way like these apostles, would you think to immediately get together with other believers? Who would you call? Where would you go? Whose house would you show up at? Different, do we love one another in this way? Like the apostles. Like the early church. Can, can we depend upon one another in this way? Do we trust one another? Do we have one another's backs in this way? Do we even know one another well enough to be comfortable doing this? Remember that glorious doctrine of adoption. Because God has saved us all through Christ, He, he has adopted us as sons and, and daughters, and we belong to Him. We're, we're actually brothers and sisters, and we should behave like it. And this is what we see illustrated in this text. And dear friends, this is an essential element of faithfully enduring persecution and opposition to what we are called to do as the church. If we do not have Christian community, we will not be as effective when the world puts pressure on us. We just won't. If we are persecuted for for standing for truth, who can we turn to if not one another? Can we turn to our jobs? I don't even think I need to answer that. They'll fire you too for being controversial. You want us to help you because you, got, you did this? No, bye. Can, can we turn to our relatives? Maybe. Depends on how much pressure we're getting because after a while, if our relatives are not Christian, they're going to say, you know what? You're just being a little bit crazy. You drank the Kool-Aid. You joined the cult. You're going to have to deal with the consequences of that yourself. We're very socialistic today, even Christians. So can we turn to the government? I would hope you know the answer to that question. The the, the government is usually one of the the biggest culprits of persecution. Are we going to turn to them for comfort? Who do we turn to? Who who can we trust? Who has our back when, when there's opposition because of the message of the cross? Where do we find support and encouragement? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian community is essential. And one of the beautiful things about this is is that the more the world persecutes the church, the closer we become to one another. When others turn against us, we recognize our need and dependence upon our spiritual family, the ones who actually have our back at all costs. This happens here in chapter 4. At the end of this chapter, we read that now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, not because the welfare system was great, but because they were taking care of one another. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it was laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. These Christians love one another radically. This is true Christian love, fellowship, and community. MacArthur notes that persecuted believers naturally draw together for mutual support. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, which is what I just read, describes the unity that resulted from this initial outbreak of opposition. But we don't see this unity in the church today. So MacArthur notes perhaps one reason for the disunity in today's church is the lack of external pressure. 
and the false unity being attempted through compromise and indifference toward true doctrine only compounds the problem by moving the church even farther from the true unity that comes out of confrontation by the truth. So one of the natural things that happens when the, when the church is, is bold in carrying out its mission is that there are external pressures placed upon the church, and this draws the church together in unity. And what he's saying is that one of the reasons why we don't have this unity today is because there are no pressures. We, we live in ease. So we, we don't depend upon one another. We don't need one another. As I've said before, if I have a need, I'll, I'll go fill out a paper for the government. They will take care of me. I don't need you to take care of me. I don't need you to help me. I don't want your charity. Charity is offensive. Welfare is my right. That's our mentality. That's how we think today. But this is not what we see. MacArthur also notes, if we confronted the world system more aggressively, the resulting opposition would drive us closer together and enrich our mutual dependence. That real unity marked the early believers. So here's the interesting thing. We don't have unity today. So we try to create a false unity, as MacArthur notes. We compromise doctrine. We compromise our theology to try to act like we have this, this unity that does not really exist. But when we are actually faithful in our mission, when we are taking the gospel to our culture, something happens. The, the, the world begins to pressure us. And when that happens, it draws us together and it unites us. If we are faithful in our mission, which means confronting the evil in our world, we will have opposition. And if we desire to face that opposition faithfully, we better be able to depend upon one another. We must have Christian community. And when this opposition comes, instead of separating us, it knits us together more closely. What a wonderful thing. You think about how easy it is for a family to be fractured. But, but the way that God has designed the church is that we would have unity and that the more pressure is, pra- is placed upon the church from the world, from the culture, from the government, from whoever it may be, it should draw us together closely, not separate us. But this is why it's essential for us to all be on the same page, that we, that we know what our mission is. And this is why is it, it is essential that we not be cowards and man-fearers. And we're going to see this again here. So, so one more thing I want to, to point out as we consider the necessity of Christian community is consider the response of the church. The, the believers that Peter and John went to did not discourage them. This is important. Because this again shows the need to not fear man. If the apostles did not fear men, but the church feared men, things would not have worked out so well. If the early church was filled with men and women who were driven by the fear of men, how would they have responded to the apostles? Why did you make a bad name for us and get yourself arrested? Why did you have to share the gospel with the rulers who arrested you? You made them mad. Why would you do this? You now put us in danger. Why would you tell the leaders that you're not going to obey them? Why don't you just be quiet and walk out of there? Why would you say that? Why, why would you say you can't help but to continue to speak in Jesus' name? Why would you do that? Why are you giving Christians a bad name and making people think that we are some kind of extremist? Notice they did not discourage them by telling them to stop confronting people with the gospel. You need to tone it down a bit. Stop telling them they crucified Christ. That's, that you trigger them when you do that. Don't do that. You need to take the gospel only to those who invite you to share it. 
You, you can't force the gospel upon people. You don't know them. You need to know them for at least six months before you share the gospel with them. That, that gospel approach you're doing where you're just, you're proclaiming truth to people who don't want to hear it, that's pretty offensive. They don't do this. The, the church did not respond that way. But that's what we hear today. For those of you who, who were at prayer meeting, when, um, when Stephen was here, he said he was going through a lawsuit, the city of Grand Rapids, for, 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 for open-air preaching. And what was the response of his church? Why don't you stop? Is that what we see here in our text? Peter and John, why don't you just stop? You're giving us a bad reputation. What is that, dear friends? Is that Christian community? No, that's actually a fear of man. I'm afraid what others are going to think of us because of what you are doing out there. I'm afraid of what might happen to us because of you. They don't respond this way. So how did these believers respond in Acts? Did Did they respond with fear? No. Verse 24 tells us how they responded. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. This is how they respond. These Christians were not man-fearing cowards who, who would turn on each other in the face of threats. Get these extremists out of here. They're giving us a bad name. No. They were courageous Christians who feared God more than men and who had true Christian unity and community. So instead of turning on one another in the face of opposition, they turned to God in prayer and asked for boldness. And we will consider this point next time. Dear friends, But perhaps you say, I'm not really a believer. I don't know if I'm a believer. So, so I, I do have this, this fear of man and what will happen to me. What if, I, what if I lose my life? Or perhaps you say, Christian community, what is this? This is foreign to us. Difference, this is what God has given to us. This is the gift of God to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He has shed His blood for us. So that if we believe in Him, if we trust in Jesus for salvation and turn from our sins, we have eternal life. And we no longer need to fear man. What can man do to me? As one pastor used to say, I know where I'm going when I die. You you can't threaten me with glory. Think about that. Why would a Christian fear man when the only thing they can do is send you to Christ faster? But, But this is why we better be sure of our salvation. We better be sure that we are trusting in Jesus for salvation. And if we don't have confidence that that we actually know him then we will fear because we fear death. And dear friends, perhaps you say that this Christian community is absolutely foreign to me. What are you talking about? Are we all going to join a compound? Is this what I'm saying? Absolutely not. But once again, we spent several weeks looking at the theme of adoption. And again, I remind you, that we have been adopted by the same Father. And so that in a very real sense, we are brothers and sisters, and we ought to act like it. And let me just say, we ought to act like proper brothers and sisters, because most of us have broken relationships with our actual brothers and sisters, so we don't even know what that's like. 
But we are to have Christian unity. We ought to have one another's backs. We, we ought not to be the type of people who, who, if the world begins to threaten one of us, we, we abandon that person and tell them to, to get out of our church because you're causing too much trouble. People should be able to, to come here and have an actual safe space, right? We have our brothers and sisters' backs. We, we hear about that, the, the text, I was hungry, and, and you, you fed me. I was in prison. You, you cared for me. Well, well if, you, if you were in prison for, for your faith, and somebody cared for you, what did that mean? That means they were willing to actually risk their neck to come to you in prison and give you food and give you what you need. Why? Because if you're in prison for having faith in Christ, who's coming to help you but another person who has faith in Christ? It's quite obvious. Are we willing to go out on a limb for our brothers and sisters and help them in time of need? Or is this a burden to us? If we are burdened by this, or it does not sound appealing to us. Remember, dear friends, that we are looking at brothers and sisters who, who were so worthy. They, they, were, they, were, they were loved so much, rather, by, by God that, that, he sh- that Christ shed his blood for them. If God thought those around you right now should have the blood of his son shed, for the remission of their sins, and he loved them that much and valued them that much, should not we do the same? These are precious brothers and sisters whom Christ died for and loves dearly. Precious brothers and sisters whom God adopted and brought near to him, all into one family. And and this is the type of community we should have. And again, if if we are to be faithful in our mission, we cannot fear man. And we must be knit together as a Christian community who has one another backs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word Father, deliver us from the fear of man. And Father, knit us together more closely as, as, a, as a local fellowship here of brothers and sisters who, who actually love for one another and care for one another and has one another's backs, Lord. Help us to be faithful in our mission. Help us to, to love the world around us enough to to desire to share the truth with them, to share the gospel with them. And that the fear of man would not cause us to close our mouths, but that we would fear you more than man. And that the love for souls and the love for the the good news of the gospel would cause us to, to open our mouths no matter what the consequences may be. Help us to be courageous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.